everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. All right, good morning, friends. A um, couple quick announcements from me before we launch in. Uh, this is a really cool thing that's happening here at this church next week. Um, but the church will actually be closed next Sunday because when we started planning our, our calendar back in January, December, one of the things that we were seeing was, you know what, in the summertime, attendance numbers get a little bit lower. We've been talking about this idea of Sabbath, and at the time, especially back in January, we were saying Sabbath is not just an individual experience, but it's meant to be practiced corporately. And so back in January, we said, what if we gave our staff a week where we could practice Sabbath together. And it would require not having church that Sunday. And as a gift to the staff, but really as a spiritual practice, we're gonna be doing that for this up and coming week. And so I wanted you to know, if you come here next Sunday, it will be quiet and locked. Um, So you don't wanna do that. But uh, there's a couple encouragements I would give to you. First, if you're like, I gotta have a service on a Sunday, we will be streaming that same service that we had on Sabbath back in January. So if you wanna watch that and re-engage that, I think my hope here too is that this is a really cool week culturally in America. This is a week where everybody celebrates. There's time coming off for a lot of people's schedules. And so for you too, that you would go, you know what, we, we don't have a church service on Sunday, but those neighbors that we've been saying for the last year and a half, we should get together for a barbecue in the summertime. Here it is. It's come. Uh, you can do that. If you've got family coming in town for a 4th of, 4th of July celebration, it's extra time to have with them. But I think my encouragement to, to us would be the same as it's been to our staff. Let there be something in this coming week, if you're going to miss there being something happening on a Sunday, let there be something about this up and coming Sunday for you where you go, you know, what? we're going to practice something just a little bit different. Uh, if the Sermon on the Mount has been teaching us anything, it's that the church is so much bigger than what happens inside the walls of this place. It's relational and it's out in the world. So this coming week, this coming Sunday can be a week where you practice that. Spend it intentionally. Uh, The second thing, especially for those that are here at first service or if you're watching online, you may not be planning on joining us after second service for our floats floats and finances today, which is fine. I just wanted to give you a quick heads up on where we are. Uh, If you were able to watch or join us back in February at our floats and finances then, one of the things that we were realizing coming into a new season with a new lead pastor, a lot of things shifting in in our church finances, was that our expenses were exceeding our income. And in a season where everything is topsy-turvy, the message in February was we need to establish a baseline. We need to know who's coming here. We need to know who's who's getting involved. And we need to know what our financial income is going to be so we know how to plan moving forward. We said then that we would wait until May, and all through the month of May, we had been making strides of, okay, what do these numbers mean? And I think I just want to be very transparent and clear. It's not great. Um, And hang with me all the way through this, because I think there's great reason for hope. But if you're going to miss it this afternoon, I want you to have the highlights. We're really realizing that we're in a spot where the natural move on the Excel sheet as we're looking at the bottom line numbers is we have to cut. And the place where we would have to cut is staff. That's the only place where we have left to cut from. 
The other thing, as we're looking at the numbers on the Excel sheet, is we've got a ton of new people that have been coming just in the last few months. And uh, the numbers on folks not just coming through a revolving door on a Sunday morning, but the amount of folks getting involved in our church is increasing dramatically. And there's an anecdote that's kind of passed around in church world that it's usually about 18 months from when a person starts attending church to when they start giving. And so we're in this tension of we have so many new people. If we were to lay off staff now, would we be rehiring those same positions in 18 months? And it just seems like unnecessary damage if there's any way that we can avoid that. So one of the solutions for us has been a lot of prayer and going, God, what do you want to do here? But as we look at all the things that we need financially, the total amount that we're looking to raise is $270,000. And if we can do that, that closes the gap and it really, it builds us a runway that we need for this coming year. And you might be thinking in your head, that's a lot of money. Um, the good news is that with a handful of conversations with some folks who have been a part of Discovery for years, we've already raised the first $106,000 of that amount. That means that of the 385 folks currently giving to Discovery in a given year, if each of those folks gave a one-time gift of about $450, we're there. Um, some people are able to do a lot more than that. Some of you are like, I can barely afford gas to get to church on Sunday. That's where we're at as a church, and that's our ask of you. And we have contingency plans of what if happens if we don't raise that much, what happens if we raise just a little bit, um, that we'll share all at Floats and Finances. But I wanted you to know where we're at, and, and especially so that you could join us in prayer um, of just what's God doing. And y'all, no matter what, God is good either way. If we don't raise another dime, God's plan for this church is moving forward. And if we raise all of it, God's plan for this church is moving forward. So join us in praying and trusting with what he's got for us next. Okay, into today's message. Um, I don't, have you ever heard the term a shaggy dog story? This is a term used in literature. It's not a super common term, but it's a term that's used. And a shaggy dog story is any story where the ending, sometimes it's misclassified as where the ending is anticlimactic, which I don't think is quite right. There's really great shaggy dog stories out there where the ending actually accentuates a very small point that's been made the entire time in the story. There's lots of different versions of this out there. There's so many different ways that these stories come out in film, in written word. One of my favorite, just quick ones, is there was a man, and he was driving down the road. It was late at night, total rainstorm, downpour, and his car broke down, and he saw a light on a hill not far away. So he got out of his car, and he trudges through the darkness. And as he gets to the door of this massive place, he realizes this is a monastery. And he knocks on the door, and this monk opens the door, and he says, I'm, I'm so sorry, my car broke down. I could really use a place to stay for the night. Do you have anywhere that you could put me up? And the monk said, come on in, my son. And he takes him to a room, and he lets him sit down. He goes, now there's places that I cannot take you in the monastery because you are not a monk, so you will need to stay here in this room. No problem, says the man. He lays down. He crashes out right away. But in the middle of the night, this sound just echoes around the entire monastery. And it's the most beautiful sound. The man never knew how to describe it to other people other than saying it must have been what the siren's call was like to Odysseus when he was being tempted on his journey back home. It, it's the sound, the, the melody, the depth, the gutter of it. It's oh, everything about the sound, but he'd never heard anything like it before. And as he woke up the next morning, he went to some of the other monks and he said, I heard a sound last night and all the monks nodded with wide eyes. And he said, what, what is making that sound? And they said, oh, we cannot tell you that for you are not a monk. 
he was dejected. And they sent him home. They, got, they actually fixed his car for him. He drove home. And for the next year, every night, he would wake up at the same time wishing that he was hearing this beautiful noise. And finally, it, it just got the better of him. He told enough people. It had just become a, an aspiration of his. He had to know what that sound was. So he drove back to the monastery, and he knocked on the door, and he said, is there anything I can do? I have to know what that sound is. And the monk looked at him, and he said, I cannot tell you, for you are not a monk. And he said, well, then make me a monk. How can I become a monk? What must I do? And the monk said, you would have to go and count every blade of grass and every grain of sand and come back and tell me the number. This man had such a dream. He had to know what that sound was. So he left immediately, and he went to every beach that he could find, and he began counting the sand. And he would go through the grass, and he would count blades of grass. Years later, he returned to the monastery with a long beard and a haggard but bright look on his face. And he knocked on the door, and a monk opened the door. He said, no man can know how many grains of sand or how many blades of grass. All a man can do is appreciate that the God of the universe is constantly growing and changing and shifting everything, and his greatest aspiration must be to know this God personally. And the monk smiled and nodded and said, come in, we will make you a monk. They go through all the ordination ceremony, the whole process, and as he finishes, he says, now can I please know the sound that's happening somewhere in the monastery? And all the monks gathered together and said, we will take you. And so they take him back into this hallway, way back in the far corner of the monastery. He didn't even know it was there. And there's a big wooden door, and one of the monks pulls out a key, and he opens the wooden door, and they open it up, and there's a small room. And then there's a metal door, and another monk takes out his key, and he opens the metal door, and it goes into another room. And then there's a silver door, and another monk takes out his key and opens that door, and then there's a golden door and another monk unlocks that. And then there's a platinum door, and another monk unlocks that. And then there's a diamond door, and another monk unlocks that. And this one they open, and it's a huge, beautiful room. The lighting alone would take your breath away. And the man, now monk, for the first time, heard the song that he would be longing to hear for years. It was finally come. And you want to know what the sound is? I can't tell you because you are not a monk. This is a shaggy dog story. It's been hiding in plain sight the whole time. You're not going to know at the end what the sound is. You have to be a monk. Now, shaggy dog stories are so fun because they take you on a ride. I think poorly done ones, there's plenty of jokes out there where you're like, that was just a colossal waste of time. That's not even funny. Some of you might be thinking that right now. Some of them, like the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones, if you remember seeing this, the whole point is that we're trying to keep the Nazis from getting the Ark of the Covenant. And Indiana Jones goes through this whole crazy adventure, and at the end, the Nazis all die, and they don't get the Ark. And it's like, Indy, if you just would have stayed home and watched Netflix, it would have ended the same way. That's a shaggy dog story. As we wrap up the Sermon on the Mount today, I would give you the lens to say, look at this like a shaggy dog story. There's been something that's been going on this entire time for Matthew as a writer where he's going, 
hey, there's, there's a punchline coming at the end of this thing, and I don't want you to miss it. This is the point of the whole thing. And it's the, like, this is Jesus giving a sermon, right? In some ways, my job's really easy because I can just read what he said and look out and make sure y'all heard it, and then we could just keep going. Like, it's a really incredible sermon. Matthew, as a writer, is going, the stuff is good. It's, it's the best sermon you're ever gonna hear. I, as a writer, am trying to get you to see one additional thing that you might not pick up from the words of Jesus, but you have to see it in the whole sermon to understand what I'm trying to tell you as a writer. And that's where we're gonna get, it, get into today. We're gonna wrap up chapter seven. I'm gonna take us kind of on a real quick, I don't know if you've ever been with a tour guide who is moving way too fast, but where you're just walking through and they're pointing at stuff as they're walking. But we're gonna have that kind of an experience as we finish up Jesus's words so that we can get to the shaggy dog that's hanging out at the very end. So if we start in Matthew chapter seven, if you brought your Bibles today, you can turn there now. And we're gonna start in verse one. We're gonna pop around just to a couple different highlights from this chapter. But the first one, again, this is like, I have the easiest job today. We could literally just read this and I look at you and we nod. It's, it's that straightforward and good. So chapter seven, verses one through five, it says this, and this is Jesus talking. Do not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged. And the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. We're a culture that loves judgment. We judge all the time. What's he talking about here? I think he's warning against all kinds of judgment. But he's not saying that we shouldn't have high standards or that there shouldn't be standards of behavior that we keep for ourselves or for other people in the world. But he is saying that there is a temptation that we all experience, that as we feel that judgment welling up, that we want to look down on other people. It's this temptation to actually play God in a way. And the funny part with how this falls is that as we get to verses 15, and t- 15 through 20, Jesus is going to be calling out terms, talking about the Gentiles, people who are not Jewish, using terms like dogs and pigs. And he's not using them derogatorily, but he is using them as labels of judgment. This is who they are and what they're like. And so Jesus clearly is not above helping people understand there's categories for things. There's ways that we can understand the world. I'm not asking you to whitewash how you see everything around you, but there is a warning. Now, I think there's two misconceptions that come with this warning. The first is that you could read this and be like, oh, it's like karma, that people will treat you how you treat other people or something, something like that, where the judgment that you show is the judgment that you'll get back. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. And I think there's a second misconception that can come with this. And it's the misconception of hearing Jesus say, don't judge, period. As if to say, don't, just, just tolerate sin, tolerate injustice. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying this is about God's judgment. It's, it's not about turning a blind eye. It's about understanding something that will happen at the end of all things, that there is a God out there and that there is a heaven waiting. Do you keep that in mind? And what will that judgment be like? It reminds us that there is a hypocrisy in all hypercriticism. 
If you're going to play the critic, you have to pretend that you're not similar, if not identical, in your own faults. Jesus, we should know, also doesn't rule out the possibility that some people will eventually be able to help others take the specks of dust out of their eye. He suggests that. That will be an end solution. But it's only after they've learned to take this log out of their own that they learn these steps to remove it. And if you're thinking to yourself, what are those steps? I love how one author put it. He said, it has much more to do with the understanding of gratitude for what you've been given you are being forgiven by God. You can offer that same forgiveness, not just ignorance, to others who are also needing it. How do you remove the log from your eye? Forgiveness. And you understand yours first, and then you can move on. Pretty incredible and straightforward. Jake mentioned last week this again idea of the lullaby effect, that you hear something like this and you go, yeah, yeah, yeah I got it to read this with fresh eyes and to think about how do I actually practice this this week? Goodness gracious, impossible. I would offer to you that to go through even a half of a day without feeling the sense of judgment or hypercriticism where you're looking down or you're so overly annoyed, this is, this is so hard. What Jesus is suggesting here as the way to life I hope makes you shake your head and also sit up straight and go, okay, I'm in. I'm, this is a challenge. How the, on earth am I going to get this done? It should challenge you. Okay. He moves on from here, and in the next section we're going to pick up actually in verse 7, and this one's a hoot. He says this, chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 7 through verse 12. Ask, and it will be given to you. Search, and you will find Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who searches finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be open. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for bread, will give a stone? Or if the child asks for a fish, will give a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask? This is awesome. He's saying that if you want a Ferrari or a good grade or $270,000 for a church, all you got to do is ask for it. I think that's a misconception. I don't think that's wrong, but I think too, this verse is one of those classic verses that gets yanked out of its context. And then you're left to wrestle with what does this actually mean? Because the Ferrari didn't show up today again. What is Jesus talking about? And I think you heard a couple weeks ago this idea of this, this Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is asking us to do is so hard. We just heard about it in judgment. This is darn near impossible. And then Jesus says, look, if you're struggling, if you're hearing this sermon, and you're thinking, how on earth am I going to accomplish any of this? I'm not supposed to lust at all. Goodness, that seems impossible. I'm supposed to forego anger and retaliation. Give me a break. I'm supposed to love my enemies and forgive people who have injured me. That sounds hard, but I'll try. You're supposed to control your criticism of other people. How are we supposed to fill all these demands to achieve this higher righteousness that Jesus is calling us to in this kingdom of heaven that he's talking about? These verses remind us that this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. That is, 
only by persistently asking and seeking and knocking at heaven's door through prayer will you be able to find the grace to obey these impossible demands solely through tenacious dependence on God's graciousness can we deal graciously with those who provoke this negative reaction in us. If you're struggling with the impossibility on this, Jesus is saying, look, there's one source that you can go to for help. Just ask. Just seek. Just go knock on the door because this is really hard what I'm asking you to do. And if you think you're going to figure it out on your own, good luck. But God will show up when you ask him to help you follow this lifestyle. That's a cool promise. Now, I don't think this means you should never pray for other things. I think if there's anything we can see in the telos of how Jesus talks about prayer, his own relationship with his father, I think it, it still invites, what do you need? What do you want? Pray for those things. But in the context of what's going on here, Jesus is saying, I want you to ask and seek and knock so that you can have a life given to you by God to help you live into this. And then from here, we get into this kind of ultimate high point in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus started out in chapter 5 saying, this is the law in the pro and the prophets. I'm here to sum up all of the Old Testament for you. And now we're going to get that statement one more time. In chapter 7, verse 12, he says this, and it's one verse. If there's anything, if you're like, what's my spiritual practice for this week? I'd like to do something different. Memorize Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. This is one of those verses that I would say, if you're a parent, teach this to your kids. Let this be something that is a, a part of how you experience correction in your house. But it goes like this. In everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. For this is the law and the prophets. I love this because Jesus is almost offering a cheat sheet. This is like if you forgot to study or read a book and it's the end and it's finals week and you don't really know what anything is about, Jesus is saying, if you've missed the entire Sermon on the Mount, let me give you the cliff notes. In everything, treat other people the way you want to be treated. That's the whole point. You can go back and read any one of those things. That's what I've been getting at this entire time. But again, it's so important for Jesus that he's not just going, here's this idea that I've had. He's rooting it in the Old Testament. He's saying, if you want to know the entire Bible is about, if you want to know what God's entire life and design for you is about, let me just sum it up. Here's the cheat sheet, the cliff notes. It's right here. If you want to memorize all of the Bible, you can literally memorize this one verse and you've got it. And I would posit to you yet again, to live this out seems impossible. The only way you will make progress on this is if you ask, and if you seek, and if you knock. Uh, okay, and from here, we're gonna start to finish up what Jesus is getting at in this, in this sermon, and we're gonna get into these images. He's gonna finish kind of with this flourish of metaphor. He's gonna talk about two kinds of gates that you can go through. He's gonna talk about two kinds of trees, one tree that produces good fruit and a tree that produces bad fruit, that there's two kinds of disciples that can follow him, one who knows him and one who doesn't, and then there's these two kinds of houses. So we don't have time to look at all of these, but I think particularly the houses, I'm hoping for those of you, whether you're new to this story and this sermon or whether you've heard this since you were a kid, I want to add a piece of context today that I hope just blows this story open again for you. So we're going to jump now to Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. 
And Jesus says this, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the wind blew, and it beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. All of these stories, the gates and the trees, all have this same theme. You get a choice today of what you're going to do. What do you think about And I think here Jesus is saying with each one of these stories, are you thinking about heaven? He's been saying this the entire sermon. What reality do you live in? You live in this reality of heaven. Because if you do, you have the end in mind and it will change how you live today. Now this image that he's talking about of building a house on a rock or on sand, he's not talking about beachside villas here. We, we have to remember where he is. Jesus is in the Middle East. He's in, he's, right, he's in Israel. It's called the Sermon on the Mount because he's giving a sermon on a mount. It's a mountain that he's sitting on the side of. And in the Middle East, the, the topography right around where he is doesn't look too dissimilar. If you've ever been to, say, Moab, Utah, or Lake Powell back in the Slot Canyons, this is a Slot Canyony type of an area. And if you've ever been in a Slot Canyon, there are these really narrow canyons. They're really in desert areas. And when it rains, all of that rain gathers. And over time, these deep channels have been cut in the rock. And it's crazy. I mean, if you're down inside one of these Slot Canyons during a rainstorm, you're dead. Like, you're not getting out of that thing in one piece. So much water comes through. And if you've ever been in one of those, the bottom of what's called in the Middle East a wadi or a slot canyon is sand. It's all sand. It's all this washout that's happened from knocking down the sides of these canyons. It's a sandy base. And it's pretty great because it's cool down there. There's lots of animals that live down there for food. It's, it's a little bit easier to find water when you're down where the water is when it's crazy. But when it's not crazy, it's really nice. Or you can build your house on the rock, which means that you build your house up above, on top of the canyon, so that when it rains, you're not in the pathway of destruction. This is the image that Jesus is bringing to mind for people. You can build your house on the sand for sure, and it will be awesome. Resources will be better for the short term. But man, at the first sign of rain, or I think Jesus would say of judgment or of things being done, you have not built with the end in mind. And you are done in a second. Build your house on the rock. It may seem more exposed. It may seem harder to get your building material up there. It may take more work. But you can look at it right now and go, that's the better place long term. That place is destined to stand. If I build down here in the sand, it's destined to be destroyed utterly. So as Jesus is finishing up the Sermon on the Mount, he's bookended this idea of the law and the prophets. This sums up the whole thing. And Jesus is now finishing with his end point. This is Jesus' point that he wants to make. Everything that I've just said, you have a choice today. Where will you build your house on my word and the things that I say, will you trust me? Or do you want to trust yourself and your own perception and what seems nice and right to you? Trust me. So that's how Jesus finishes. 
This is not just some two paths diverged in the forest and I chose the one less traveled Robert Frost type of thing. He's not saying live your life uniquely. This isn't some motivational self-help speech. This is a speech where he is saying there's a reality of heaven. You may live in it today. The kingdom of heaven is near. And if you remember, before this sermon started, that had been Jesus' sermon, that had been John the Baptist's sermon, and I think if you would read the entire Old Testament, it's the sermon that God has been giving over and over and over, live in the highest reality. But, as we said at the beginning, that was Jesus' point for the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew, as the writer, has been telling a shaggy dog story this entire time. And it's really fun. Because when you see it, it just speaks volumes about what Matthew is trying to get you to understand about that Jesus. Jesus is saying, this teaching is really good. Don't miss it. This is not a shaggy dog story where you go, that was a waste of time. I can't believe it took us that long to get there. It's good. But Matthew has one more sneaky point that he wants to slide in as an author. Who does this man think he is? This whole time, he's been using this phrase over and over and over. You've heard it said, but I say to you. You've read this in the Old Testament. You've heard this in a synagogue or in a church. You've heard it there, but I'm going to tell you something different. Let me tell you what this is really about. And we'll see Matthew's point if we just read the last little bit of chapter 7. Verses 28 and 29, Matthew just throws this as a fun little cheap shot right at the end. Now, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astounded at this teaching, for he had taught them as one having authority and not as one of their scribes. Now, if you're reading this without a lot more context, those are really easy verses to just skip over and go, well, of course, is Jesus? He's sitting on a mountain. It's a nice day. Of course, they're astounded. This is really good stuff. That's not what Matthew's trying to get you to understand. What Matthew's trying to point out is is this idea of how did scribes teach? If he taught not as one of their scribes, how would scribes do it? And it's not too different from how we do college papers today. If you're working on a PhD and you're writing your thesis, you have to cite everything. You can't just make up stuff and put it in there and go on your merry way. You have to prove where it came from. And the scribes of Jesus' time would do the same thing. They wouldn't just say, here's my interpretation of things, but they would say, here's what I will say to you because this is what my rabbi taught me, whose rabbi taught him. You had to cite your work. And this whole time, Jesus has been using this terminology, you've heard it said, but I say to you. He's citing himself. The audacity of this man He thinks that he can hang with the authority of the Bible. And I think if you're really to look at this in context, we've got Jesus sitting on the side of the mountain saying, here's what the law is about. Right away, if you're Jewish, you're going, well, this looks an awful lot like Moses sitting on the side of a mountain bringing down to everybody saying, this is what the law is about. He's hearkening back. But where Moses will even say, this is what God says, we have Jesus even taking a step above Moses saying, this is what I say. And if you're Jewish in the crowd, you are freaking out because either this guy's a total lunatic maniac or he's claiming that he is God. 
It's so fun. We've talked about this a little bit in the past, but numbers for Jewish people are so important. The number seven is this number of perfection. And I I think it would be really fun for you to know too. Matthew has Jesus saying this quote, you've heard it said, but I say to you 14 times. So Matthew as a writer is saying, I just want you to know he's that good. He's perfect times two. That's how good this teacher is. And of course, by the time we get to the end of this story, people are astounded. The, the Greek word there really is getting back to this idea of they're troubled, they're, they're challenged, they're blown away because he doesn't teach like a scribe. He's not citing who taught what to him. He's citing himself saying, I am the source of life. Don't miss that point. It's hiding in plain sight. It's just like the story of the monks where you get to the end and it's, it's, it's been there the entire time. I can't tell you because you're not a monk. I must tell you because I am God. That is Jesus' point. And Matthew does not want you to miss it. And it offers a beautiful choice, ironically, just coming out of Jesus' final choice. Who do you think this man is? In all the things you just heard in this sermon, he's incredible. It should astound you. It should trouble you. It should make you feel so inadequate on your own that you could only live this life if you were dependent on God himself. Do you believe that that's true? Or Matthew's just putting in stark contrast, or is this guy just loony? Cuckoo for coconuts. I mean, worse than anybody else you've ever met before. If you're drawn to know this Jesus, not just as a teacher, but as the king of your life, I would encourage you, come chat with somebody after the service. We'll have some folks here up front. But it is a stark choice that Jesus is giving. Where will you build your life? On the sand or on the rock? Uh, A few weeks ago, as I was preparing for some of this series, I came upon a poem. and blew past it pretty quickly, and then it just haunted me. <laughs> this, this whole last month, it's just stuck in my craw. I couldn't get away from it. And today seemed like the most appropriate time to get to share it with you. And just a, a quick couple heads up on this. The title of the po- poem is Debaptize Me. I'm not advocating that anybody here should get debaptized, okay? So just to make sure that's clear from the upfront. But I think for me, this poem puts in really beautiful contrast what Jesus has been getting at this entire time in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just about hearing the words and saying, cool, I'm in. Jesus is driving at something so much more for you and for me. And this poem will talk about being baptized as a baby, but I would say no matter what age, if you've been baptized or if you would consider being baptized, I hope that this puts a point on it in you where you go, oh, that just, that makes me live from my guts. That makes me want to follow this Jesus that I see in the Sermon on the Mount, not just in my words, but in my actions. And it's a poem by a pastor. Um, His name's Brian McLaren. He posted this several years ago, and here's how it goes. If it's small on the screen, it's a poem, so you might just want to close your eyes and listen to this, but it goes like this. Uh, Let me bring out the band, too, before I wrap us up here. She says, he says, please disbaptize me, she said. The priest's face crumpled. My parents tell me you did it, she said, but I was not consulted, so now undo it. 
The priest's eyes asked, why? If it were just about belonging to this religion and being forgiven, then I would stay. If it were just about believing this list of doctrines and upholding this list of rituals, I'd be okay. But your sermon Sunday made it clear it's about more. More than I bargained for. So please, de-baptize me. The priest looked down, said nothing, and she continued. You said baptism sends me into the world to love enemies. I don't, nor do I plan to. You said it means being willing to stand against the flow. I I like the flow. You described it like rethinking everything, like joining a movement, but I'm not rethinking or moving anywhere, so unbaptize me, please. The priest began to weep. Soon great sobs rose from his deepest heart. He took off his glasses, blew his nose, took three tissues to dry his eyes. These are tears of joy, he said. I think you are the first person who ever truly listened or understood. So, she said, will you, please? It puts into contrast this lullaby effect, this sermon that if you've been following for Jesus for years, these words just sound so familiar that sometimes you can forget these mean something. These change how you live today. This week should be incredibly hard and beautiful and good and for sure dependent on the God who made you and has a plan for you and has a world that he wants you to live in. The kingdom of heaven is here. Do you live in it? Not just with a mental assent of yes, these things are true, but with your actions. Can you follow this Jesus in your lifestyle? Matthew, this entire time, has been saying he's not just some guy sitting on the side of a mountain spouting good ideas. This is the God of the universe. Listen to him, but it's not enough to listen. Do it. Live this life. I'm going to close us um, for this part of the message today with a prayer. But again, I would say, if you've been hearing about this Jesus for years, or even just in these last weeks, or even just today, if you hear these teachings and you go, this, this just is so good. If people lived this way, the world would be better. It would, it would start to smack of something like heaven. I think Jesus is sitting opposite you, nodding his head with a huge smile on his face, going, it is. This is what heaven will be like. You don't have to wait till the end to start living it today. If you want to make your life about this life, about this king, today could be the day. Come chat with somebody up front. Let's pray. Jesus, I don't, in my own stuff, I just don't want to hear it and smile and say, that's good. People should do that. And then never change And I also see the things that you've talked about in this sermon, and they're impossible. Jesus, help me today to believe that this is possible through you. I pray for us as a church that we continue to become a people who when we read stuff like this, we don't just smile and nod, but that we roll up our sleeves and we get in it. Keep us dependent on you in all things. You are good all the time. Thanks for the gift of being together where we can look at each other and encourage each other to keep going. It's in your name we pray.
Amen.